0: This program is released under a Creative Commons license. For more information, visit creativecommons.org. This is Christ the Center, Episode 30. Today we speak with Rick Phillips about cultural relevance, mercy ministry, and the danger of the social gospel. Welcome to Christ the Center, Doctrine for Life, a weekly conversation of Reformed Theology. My name is Camden Busey. Today, let me introduce to you our panel. We have with us Jim Cassidy, who is pastor of Calvary Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Ringoes, New Jersey. We also have with us James Dalzow, who is a Ph.D. student at Westminster Theological Seminary. Nick Batzig, who is Interim Pastor at Christ the King PCA in Conshohocken, Pennsylvania. Jeff Waddington, who is Teacher of the Congregation at Calvary Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Ringoes, New Jersey. And, finally, our special guest, Rick Phillips, who is Senior Minister at Second Presbyterian Church in Greenville, South Carolina. He's also the author of several books, including What's So Great About the Doctrines of Grace... Uh, two commentaries uh, in the Reformed Expositors Commentary Set, Zechariah and Hebrews, and also Jesus the Evangelist. So good afternoon, guys. It's a pleasure to be with you. Hi,
1: Camden. Camden. Great
2: to be here.
0: Excellent. Uh, today we're going to be speaking about cultural relevance, mercy ministry, and the social gospel, uh, kind of a hot topic in different uh, different sec- sectors of uh, Reformed theology. Uh, but before that, we of course wanted to mention any New books or conferences or announcements, guys. Is there anything out there?
3: There are actually some new titles that have shown up on the, the uh, coming soon section uh, over at the Westminster Bookstore. Mm-hmm. I was there yesterday and uh, you know I looked around. So you're but, broke uh, now? Uh, yeah, but that's not completely related to going to the bookstore. No. no, no, I see. no. Partially related, but not completely. Uh, the the one one title is called "The Preaching of Jonathan Edwards" by John Carrick uh, from Greenville Seminary. That's coming out uh, in August mm-hmm. uh, from Banner of Truth. That's Banner, uh, Yes, yeah. yeah, that's a Banner of Truth title, and it's four hundred and some odd pages. Uh, Nick tells me this is uh, going to be a
1: really good book. Isn't that true, Nick? I think it will. He's done a lot of work on it. I think he's been working on it for about five years. Wow, okay, yeah. It
3: looks like it's going to be a nice uh, nice volume.
2: Uh, Let me say Dr. Carrick worships with us quite frequently. Usually when he's not uh, preaching somewhere, he worships with us. And uh, what wow. a lovely Christian man he is.
1: Mm, he is. Very nice.
3: Now, let's see. Oh, there's, uh, there's, I guess, uh, quite a number of Banner of Truth titles that have uh, that have been uh, announced Uh, oh uh, John Fesco's book on justification excellent uh, PNR title uh, is due out uh, in September okay Uh, then there's this really silly book called reforming or conforming
0: yep uh, Gary Johnson the editor
3: and tell us
4: why it's so silly yeah (laughs)
3: <laughs> well, um, be, probably because uh, I have a chapter in there. Oh, that would make it silly then. <laughs>
4: yeah.
0: That's your Other chapter on. Um...
4: Actually, that chapter is is very good, and uh, it's on Van Til foundationalism. Is that correct? That's that right. that's correct. Mm-hmm. Uh,
3: yes, it's uh it's a it's a, actually it's a very good book. I, we've been we've been looking through it, of course, because we interviewed Gary Johnson several weeks ago, but it's mm-hmm. it's. A very good title. So, uh, and that that actually will touch upon some of what we're talking about today.
1: Yeah, that's right. Camden, I wanted to mention since you talked about conferences. Um, oh yeah. In November, November 1st is the Together for Adoption conference. And since we have Rick on the phone, uh, Rick is one of the speakers there. Russell Moore, I guess he's a Southern Baptist. Carl Robbins, who is the pastor of Woodruff Road Presbyterian in Greenville. And um, I'm probably not going to say this right, Tulian Chavidian, who is in South Florida. Um, That's November 1st in Greenville at Southside Fellowship and that looks like it'll be a good conference. Also, the Gospel Coalition Conference, hmm. we should mention, I don't think we have, and that, I'm not sure about the dates exactly. That's coming up, I think, spring 2009.
2: Well, if we're going to do spring, we've got to talk about the Philadelphia Conference on Reformed Theology. But
1: hmm. well, Let's yeah. do that. Rick,
2: Rick tell us about this it. This year is uh, Right With God, the Doctrine of Justification.
5: Mm. Oh, so sweet. We'll
2: be in uh, Sacramento, uh uh, Grand Rapids, Greenville, and Philadelphia. Very nice. nice.
0: Excellent. Well, make sure to put those on the calendar. Uh, we try to keep those a up to of date.
2: regional conferences this of yes. fall. I know the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, we have a, a Princeton conference. I'm speaking at an Indianapolis conference. There's a Pittsburgh conference. I think I'm speaking at that one, too. Uh, maybe a Minneapolis conference. We've got a lot of regional conferences going on. Mm. To so go to alliancenet.org to find out where they are.
0: Excellent. Well, also, uh, as I mentioned, well, that's a good place to go, of course. But uh, we'll try to keep all, all these that we mention up on our calendar. You go to castlechurch.org slash calendar. So we've got all the Ligonier ones, the Desiring God conferences, the CCEF annual conferences coming up. Um There's several, several, several conferences going, so we'll try to keep you up to date with those. Are there any other books or conferences? I guess we nailed all the conferences.
4: Well, actually, uh, we,
3: we we didn't. Uh, oh, okay. Jeff,
4: I I hope we have one coming up that we might want to
3: mention as well. Oh, yes. I guess we can we can announce that now <laughs> on Saturday, October 25th. Right, Jim? Uh, that's why I had, <laughs> I had asked oh, you because okay. I was hoping you'd
4: have the exact date because I had it in front of me. I
3: believe it's October Saturday, October 25th. From I believe the, you're right, yeah. <laughs> 10 o'clock to 2, we're doing a mini seminar on the Book of Revelation with Dr. Vern Poinsot. Oh, yes. Lights. At Calvary OPC in Ringo's. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, anybody that's in the area, please feel free to come up. Uh, Rick, if you're not busy, take a drive up <laughs> to New Jersey.
2: <laughs> nah, I'll look forward to it, guys. <laughs> <laughs>
4: That's great.
0: And Dr. Poitras, of course, uh, an expert on the book of Revelation, uh, has written uh, a small commentary entitled uh, The Returning King, but he's done much work and teaches a doctoral course on the book of Revelation. So hearing him speak about that book would just be amazing. So I would encourage anyone who can to go attend that.
4: And and everybody knows where Ringo's, uh, the great metropolis here in New Jersey is. Uh, No need to go to the website, but if you need the website, it's (laughs) listed right here on uh, the website that you're listening to, Castle Church.
0: Yes, and the church website being calvary-amwell.org. That is correct. Of course, we've been mentioning uh, the Defense of the Faith, 4th edition. That's been out for a little while, Um, half price at Westminster, the Westminster Bookstore. Uh, and several others that we will be reviewing here in the near term on the website. So stay tuned and keep uh, looking at our webpage, and you'll be seeing our reviews and uh, our comments, and you can comment as well on the different books that we post. Uh, But today we wanted to get to our topic here, speaking about cultural relevance, mercy ministry, and the social gospel. Uh, In Reformed theology, there are people of different views. Uh, There are some people who might call themselves Neo-Calvinists, or uh, follow in the trajectories of one Abraham Kuyper. There are other people who take a much more spirituality view, but uh, not see uh, a real uh, important place for culture in the Christian life. So there's there's a tendency or a, a tension between these two different extremes, perhaps, if that's the way we put it in the in the Reformed world. Uh, so. Would somebody like to maybe just uh, list some of the issues that we have and, and some of the big questions that need to be answered?
1: Well, Camden, I'd like to start off by just talking to Rick about um, 10th Presbyterian's ministry, because they have a pretty fruitful mercy ministry, and I know he was a minister there. And yeah, let's do that. Rick, if you could just tell us how maybe that got started, were you there when that was started? Um, what thoughts you have about the way 10th did Mercy Ministry in the City to start us off?
2: Yeah, um, I was uh, I was actually converted at 10th in 1990, and a lot of that stuff was going on long before then. 10th is a good example, I think, because 10th is a church that has a strong historic commitment to um, the centrality of the public ministry of the Word and of the ordinary means of grace. That's really what the ministry staff of 10th has historically focused on, certainly the senior ministers have been well-known theologians and preachers. And uh, Tenth's 10th, uh, historic calling card is not Mercy Ministries. It's um, the preaching of the Word and uh, of Reformed theology as well. Uh, Dr. Boyce was very strong on the spirituality of the Church. Didn't get involved in moral crusades. Refused to get involved in political issues. We had a situation once. I remember that. Uh, it, it just so happens. I don't know if it's still the case, but Seventeenth uh, and Spruce was one of the places for male prostitution. That is really? address of Tent, and and the reason is largely because Tent is there—a large building, old building with nooks and dark crannies that is unoccupied at night, and. Um, And you would see, um, uh, during the day, our church uh, administrator, who dealt with that more than I did, would point it out to me, teenage boys who were male prostitutes. And uh, you would drive by, you know, uh, apparently you would circle the block and there was some signal way and they would pick up male prostitutes. Well, the local police precinct decided to respond with um, uh, uh, a rally, a public march against prostitution and, and all this stuff, and they, they wanted to um, meet at the church and kind of gather people in the catacombs of the church and then have, like, refreshments there. Dr. Boyce refused them and said, you may not use our church for that. And I remember the police captain was really kind of confused. He said, I thought you were, like, evangelicals. You were for moral issues and whatnot. And Dr. Boyce said, don't get me wrong. I approve of what you're doing. I, I, I'll pray for you. But we cannot allow our church to be identified with that kind of to be used for that kind of thing because you see we have an evangelistic outreach to those same people hmm. and Dr. Boyce very much in fact he would often cite Lloyd-Jones uh, I, and I'm kind of in that camp too where you know people would come to Lloyd-Jones and go hey we've got an abstinence you know or a teetotaling society he would you be on the board he says I will not I am one thing I'm a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ and if I get associated with political causes and what not then I will Lose my platform for for the ministry of the gospel, and so tenth has a lot of that in its history. At the same time, uh, tenth is a good example of a of a grassroots ministry type church. It was probably in the seventies, I think, when uh, uh, a group of women said, "We need to the Holy Spirit's working in our lives, and we see the need, and we're reading Scripture, and we think we should do something about abortion, and we're going to put together a crisis pregnancy center." and I forget the name of it now, Alpha Pregnancy Center, I think, is what it is. Big uh, organization all through Philadelphia. Now, it began at 10th, and uh, Dr. Boyce and 10th uh, the session would, would nurture them and give them counsel, but it was not the church's planning. It was not a ministry of the church, per se. It was the result of the ministry of the Word and believers' lives, and they responded, and the church helped them. Any number of, and that's really how 10th um, got started in these kinds of things. Another example would be Harvest, a wonderful outreach ministry to uh, the homosexual community. And then what used to be—I don't know if it's still going on—it was Hope Ministries, which was a mercy ministry to those dying of AIDS. Reverend Ken Larder was the minister of that for a good 10 years or so. None of those were ministries started by 10th but they were all ministry started at Tenth. Do you, do you follow the distinction? Yeah. That's- and the Tenth is devoting itself to preaching the Word, to prayer, to the ordinary means of grace, and the Holy Spirit blessing the Word is moving in the people, and the Church would facilitate that. Now, um, before I got there, David Apple uh, came, and there was an uh, Acts ministry, which is sort of the mercy ministry to the uh, to the homeless. Uh, for a long time, Acts was not part of Tenth. Tenth just was kind of a location for it, and over time, it, it, it became officially part of the Tenth Ministry. But even the very well known Acts Ministry um, uh, was not something the Tenth started. It, it, it kind of it found Tenth and, and latched itself on. So the lesson I think the Tenth would say would argue is what the church needs to be in the business of is in the preaching of the gospel. And edification of Christians through the ordinary means of grace, primarily through the teaching of the whole counsel of God. And when that's happening, one of the fruits of that will be love and compassion on the world, and your people will do things. But it has historically not been—I know more recently, uh, Paul Tripp's come on board the staff at Henthesus, since I've left, and he's in charge of urban outreach. And and, uh, I actually, when I was there, I argued that we ought to be more aggressive in urban evangelism. Right. But so uh, the history of 10th is really uh, look, what the church needs to do is to preach the gospel. And then when that's really happening, the Holy Spirit will move into people's lives and they will do mercy ministries.
1: Rick, w- what would you say to somebody that said that mercy ministry was a part of the gospel? That. Um Maybe, I guess we might say they confuse the method of outreach and the evidence and the fruit of the gospel with the message. How, how would you address um, maybe a believer in your church, uh, just a lay person who would come to you and said, we need to be doing mercy ministry, that's part of the gospel?
2: Well, uh, I understand the argument and I have sympathy with it. But it is not, um, it wants in some precision, and I think in significant ways. It is a fruit of the Gospel, Mm. and a necessary, just as we (laughs) believe, that good works are necessary to a Christian salvation, not Mm. as a condition, but as a consequence. If you have been truly saved, then God has prepared good works for you to do. And Mm. you will do good works, you're not saved by doing them, but you are saved to do them. And in a similar way, the ministry of the Gospel does not consist of mercy ministry, but... Uh, the people of God in all kinds of ways, depending on where you are and and that kind of thing. Um, The gospel will and should produce mercy ministry, but I'm very uneasy to say that mercy ministry is inherent to to, to the gospel itself. I think that we we need to confuse... I mean, the doing of mercy... Here's one of the big points, I think, that's probably on the table today. The doing of mercy ministry is not the gospel. Mm. Right. That's one of the huge right. issues. Right. Are we, 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 we there's a habitat for humanities down the street. We go and we build a house. Have we done gospel ministry? The answer is no. Right. Does that make habitat for humanity bad? Of course not. Um and it's only natural for Christians to doing that. But the, the gospel involves the the heralding of the good news, uh the the proclaiming in words of, of what God has done for the sinful world through the coming of His Son, Jesus Christ. The, the proclamation of the Historia Salutis is the gospel proclamation. Um, and uh, to do good things that don't involve the gospel proclamation, they're still good things, but they're just not the gospel.
0: That's good. That's really excellent. Yeah. Now, what exactly is the social gospel? Is it, a, it, it seems to be, uh, we've touched on it just a little bit, uh, would it be fair to say that it is a confusion of, of the gospel message and mistaking it for the doing of good works?
2: Yes, and, and I think there's two big things. One is there's kind of the morphing of the gospel mm-hmm. into mm-hmm. social gospel, which I, I think there's good reason to be concerned about today. Uh, but the social gospel is a recategorization of all of the language of the gospel into sociological terms. And so sin is uh, disempowerment structures. And um, uh, condemnation is, you know, ignorance. And and so salvation is feeding and teaching people. And so all the terminology of the gospel gets recast into sociological terms. Um, I think... There's people today within the evangelical movement explicitly doing that that very thing, and what happens is it's an abandonment of the gospel for a uh, earth you know completely earthbound uh, salvation. Re- the biblical term redemption refers in terms of Christian salvation teaching and gospel teaching refers to the uh, the buying out through the blood of Christ. Of sinners from the guilt and power of their sin, from the wrath of God in just punishment for their sins, and the power of the world of flesh and the devil—that is what redemption means in the gospel.
4: Hey, Rick, and, I, I have a I have a question here um, in connection with this because now now you got me thinking. Um, it takes a lot to make that happen, and, and you've done it. Um Amen. Really, Amen. <laughs> really appreciate those remarks. Uh, this is really good stuff. My, my, I guess my question is, I'm having a hard time formulating it, but I guess my question is, why? Uh, it, traditionally, the social gospel is associated with liberal theology, that the churches that had embraced liberal theology were the ones doing the social gospel, uh, as you said, um, making the gospel earthbound, etc., why is it now that evangelicals, uh, traditionally known as being the anti-liberals, um, why are they now embracing this social gospel perspective? I'm
2: going to give you three reasons off the top of my head, which I'll give you to them in bad, worse to better. The first reason is that we have been through a progression that goes like this, orthodoxy to pietism to liberalism. Hmm. And so mm-hmm. the great evangelical movement of whatever year it was, let's say 1950, by the time you get to the mid 70s and 80s, and this largely has to do with the the spread of charismaticism. But I don't want to put it all at their door. But it's just be, the doctrine's been dumbed down, and it's it's all about me and my and my emotional experience with Jesus. I mean, the evangelical movement today is defined not by content, but it is defined by experience and feeling. I'm actually. Doing a, a my Wednesday night class tonight. I'm doing First Timothy four, uh, one to five, and, and I'm making a comment in my class tonight, where Paul talks about apostasy as those who have fallen away from the faith. Mm. That's Paul's that's Paul's synonym for Christianity, the faith. He's talking about doctrinal content. That's right. So we, we've lived our whole Christian lives in this in this era. That uh, I mean, you're not know, going you to get hung up on doctrine. It's all about loving Jesus and all that. And so that's a, a transitional state. Uh, you start with orthodoxy, you go to pietism, where and what happens is a generation is raised in Israel that does not know the Lord, does not know the gospel, does not know truth. And what then becomes is liberalism. And so there's no question in my mind, the evangelical movement today is becoming formally liberal. Now, what is liberalism? Liberalism is not, a, it's not you know Darwinism per se. Liberalism is allowing the world to tell you how to think. It is the desire to rescue Christianity by changing it to conform to the winds of your generation. And so if that's what liberalism is, evangelicalism has completed, it is a broad movement, has now in our lifetimes completed the morph from orthodoxy through pietism, where doctrine doesn't matter, when all doctrinal statements must be as minimal as possible. Uh, Christianity Today article 10 years ago, I remember reading it, I almost fell out of my chair, but I knew it was true, uh, what's the What's an evangelical? And they end up saying there's three things that you got to be to be an evangelical. One, you got to believe in the Bible, not necessarily inerrancy, but it's a holy book. You know, the Bible's your book. Uh, two, you have to have had some life-transforming experience that, you know, goes with the term born again.
5: Right.
2: But let's not be doctrinally specific. Three, you have to have a desire to share it with others. My first thought was, wow, the atonement didn't make the list.
5: Yeah. No.
2: Well, see, that's Pietism, and so it's all subjective. It's all about experience. Um, it's not about believing, receiving in faith, you know, the, the apostolic testimony of Jesus Christ. It's about a personal relationship with Jesus, and you define it. That will always produce liberalism.
4: I find it interesting that that the gospel itself didn't make
2: it to the list. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's right for evangelical. We've all been wrestling with that. I mean, all, and that's that's the times that we're living in. When, I mean, I, I really believe, and I don't mean this in a snarky kind of way, I believe that it's probably the case that most evangelicals are not Christians. Mm. The whole definition. How could they be? And that's something to lament and for us to uh, respond with by focusing on the gospel. But you see, once you become liberal, what, what concerns you are earthly things, not not heavenly things. And right. I think that's partly why that we've gotten in bed with the Republican Party. Look, I'm not... I'm not here to promote the Democratic Party, per se, but evangelicalism has met a political agenda. Many things I would agree with myself, but that's our identity, not, you know, what's an evangelical? My brother's an unbeliever, a an atheist, lifelong atheist, well, not lifelong, but he's been one for years. And I, he lives in Virginia, and I asked him now, well, what do you think a Christian is? He goes, well, a Christian is someone who's, a fool, who's against gun control. Oh And, you know, I mean, well, um, well, and why yeah. would they think that? Well, that's, so that's one reason. Now, there's another uh, reason that's happened. Is That's the worst reason. I think it's been profoundly shaping us. Another is that the whole history of the church is the flight from one error into the arms of another.
5: Right. And
2: I mean, are, boy, are we experiencing this in the reform movement today? Mm-hmm. We're just mm-hmm. ping-ponging. And so you've got guys, we've got tons of guys like this, probably some of you, that you were raised in fundamentalist homes, and now you think the height of Christian liberty is to get almost drunk, it's <laughs> they so went from <laughs> fundamentalism to reform licentiousness, I had somebody say to me, in "My parking lot, a young man, is it essential to the reform faith that I smoke cigars and, and drink quite a bit?"
5: Oh, I said, I said, I
2: said, it's actually not to the level of being essential to Calvinism, but there's a you know one example. I think the I think the whole federal the whole federal vision perspective in, in our communions, not maybe elsewhere, but here is a it almost completely reactionary movement. They're reacting to a low view of the Church, reacting to a low sacramentology, and so they're going to correct that by going to the other extreme. Mm-hmm. Well, sociologically, the evangelical movement has in fact been a white middle class, well, not to say middle class, but a white movement, Right. And, and we feel the tensions of the racial divide, um, and we have not been a socially activist movement in terms of good Samaritan-type things. At least we don't think we've been. It's probably not fair. And so you're having a reaction now uh, against the whole political thing, and waging the culture war. We've been caught up in the culture war, and now we're reacting to the other extreme. Now, I don't know that those, either one of those two, maybe a little of the second one, but when you get to the Reformed world, I think it's a desire, a sincere desire to be evangelistically aggressive. Right, right. I really think, and I think some of that's reactionary. I think some of it is a perception, no doubt, in many respects, true in many quarters, that we have not shown zeal for evangelism, and we need a whole new paradigm. And I think that that is really what's causing it, Now, that's the best of reasons. But uh, just as I think revivalism was a bad application of a good desire, and the altar calls, and they wanted people to be saved, and that seemed to be working. I'm troubled by, um, I wouldn't, I'm not prepared to say social gospel, but the the heavy emphasis on common grace, upon redeeming the culture, mm-hmm. upon acts of, of of social mercy as being really the thing that that we're going to have identify as. Not, I mean, uh, mm. uh, maybe maybe that's even overstating it, but I, I think that you know, as you said, Nick, that the gospel is. Social mercy. Well, I mean, you have to parse that very finely for it not to be very sloppy and dangerous. Mm-hmm. So, I think that that's kind of how I see us, how we got here.
5: Oh. Let me say,
2: I am all for evangelism I do worry about uh, confessionally zealous, reformed people who do not have a missional attitude, and I want to use that term in a, in a yes, in what I think is a good sense. Um, I think it's a false dichotomy that you can either be a PR, you can either be you know someone who's zealously concerned about Reformed orthodoxy, or you can be someone who has a passion for the lost. That is, a church history refutes that. I refute it. I myself am am a zealous Reformed Orthodox, you know, confessionalist, and I think about uh, what my church is going to do to reach the lost in my city all the time.
0: Rick on that could you could you map out for us then how if we have if we have seen a, a waning or a loss of evangelistic zeal and we identify uh, that zeal getting sort of uh, worked out or corrected in some wrong ways what are some ways more positively that we can capture an appropriate biblical zeal
2: well, the first step that everyone needs to follow is to purchase my book, Jesus the Evangelist. <laughs> Actually, go.
0: that is good advice. It's a great book. That's
2: the purpose for which I wrote the book. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think, again, there's been a reaction against the whole ev- evangelical manipulation machine. Um, and so, um, and we've kind of backed off from evangelism because we're, we're not quite sure what to do authentically. That's certainly true for a lot of people coming out of. Arminian circles coming to the Reformed faith are just so sick, and I'm sympathetic with them, of the whole manipulation machine. My, my, I was present, I won't tell you uh, the context because I'll offend some of the people I know, but um, I was present at a, one of these churches a couple, three years ago, and the altar call was so manipulative, so abusive, that I said to my wife, I'm going to put an end to this, I'm going up there and getting baptized. And she said, you can't say you're a peace administrator." minister. I said, honey, it's an act of mercy. <laughs>
0: you know? Oh, my goodness. Because <laughs> so I had it that.
2: Some guy uh, finally gave in, and they baptized him on the spot. I mean, and I understand, or at least I don't quite have the visceral feeling others do, but I get it, why people, the whole term evangelism makes them want to vomit because of the abuse of revivalism.
5: Yeah.
2: But, um, you know, but I think, again, I think Satan is in the business of turning our strengths into weaknesses, and mm-hmm. I hate him because he's so smart and uh, the Reformed community that I've certainly spent my Christian life in really believes in public worship, the public ministry of the, of the gospel, and so we, that becomes a weakness to us, which it should not, and that that's all we do. And everything's got to be a preaching event with expository preaching, and believe me, I'm all for expository preaching. And yet that is not the whole ministry of the Christian people. And so I, I think we're just so prone to overreaction. We're so prone... To our strengths becoming, you know, uh, our weaknesses, and so I, I think that um, I think we need to rethink from the scriptures. Your, your question is, where do we go? And that's why I wrote that book. We need to be reading our Bibles and going, Hey, you know, I know non-Christian people, and Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, so have I sent you. Hmm. And we need to, That our pulpits and our church leaders, for sure, need to strongly send forth a biblical mandate of biblical evangelism and press it upon our people. Now, there's examples of it in the midst of all this is EE. E. I know EE e. gets trashed in reform circles, but i got to tell you, EE uh, e. may be subject to abuse, but EE e. has, has been a vehicle by which thousands of Christians have biblically presented the gospel so that people are saved. Yes. So I'm all for evangelism training. We do it in my church. I do think, here's where I part waters with Lloyd-Jones and Boyce, uh, Lloyd-Jones was big on, you know, you don't need evangelism training. A true Christian knows how to share the gospel. I think it's, it's, it's uh, naive. I think we need to intentionally equip our people for personal witness. And I think as churches, we need to have a missional strategy for the place where God set us.
1: Rick, um, a lot of people for the last couple of years have really emphasized the need to be culturally relevant. Um, in our, events. and as you
2: know, I am culturally relevant because I have a joke you, I know, I have a Facebook.
5: Account. <laughs> yes,
2: yes. We, we just do.
0: spoke with Derek Thomas about this, and he told us that his lifelong goal is to have more friends on Facebook than Lick and Duncan. Yeah, so,
1: <laughs> Rick, my Rick, my question though was: a lot of people emphasize we got to be culturally relevant, but they haven't set the boundaries. Um, they haven't defined what that means and what that looks like. What thoughts do you have on that?
2: Well, in general, before I nuance it, I'm deeply offended for the sake of the gospel by, by that kind of statement. Because the assumption is that the gospel is not itself culturally relevant. Mm. Right. And uh, I do think that for many people it's permeating this whole message. That is the underlying assumption. We've got to do something to make the Christian message offensive and uh, are irrelevant. And I think, again, there's an overreaction against, you know, uh, offensive street preachers. And when, I, when, I was, when I lived in Philadelphia, I'd get off the train at a suburban station, and for a number of months, there was a woman who had this big placard that had, um, you know, there was a flaming river, and on one side there were people in flames, and on the other side there were people in white praising God, and there was a bridge, and the bridge was a cross. And I remember, think, I remember thinking, you know, theologically, it's excellent. I don't think it's effective, though. <laughs> and I, people who were reacting against um, the, revised, the the tract mentality. I don't wanna, I'm not against tracts, but but particularly an in-your-face condemnation-driven uh, evangelism. Uh, okay, well let's that, that, let's let's think more clearly about how this is why. You know, I'm fascinated by John Four. I did a whole section in my book on Jesus evangelism on John Four. fast What a great study. John Four is on evangelism, but but, you know, what's happening is we're saying that we've got to do something, that the gospel is something that we have to overcome a little bit by putting it in the right clothes. Now, that <laughs> is offensive, and it is a dangerous game to play. I mean, who, who of us has the, the wisdom? And, and one of the ways it comes out is in, well, you know, we have to speak a different language. I remember it was in Philly. We were at 17th and Spruce, and I was talking to a guy who was doing it. He wasn't a PCA guy. He may not even been reformed. Probably was, but he was doing evangelism in West Philly, which is 13 blocks away. And he said to me, "It's a completely different world. You can't use the same language at all." I'm going, "What are you talking about?" Now there is a sociological divide between a fluent center city and West Philadelphia. Where you, you know, and yet it is still our duty lovingly to talk to people about sin about the blood of Christ, about the gospel. And so we don't have to change the gospel. I had a, uh, actually a seminary president say to me at one time, when dealing with Latin Americans, we've got to find some other description of God than Father. <laughs> Because Latin American men, you know, they got all these problems and, you know, people don't want to hear about any male thing.
5: Mm-hmm.
2: So we just got to jettison the whole idea of God the Father. And I said, no, no, surely you mean we need to be thoughtful and loving and we need to, you know, I mean, I, in America today, I never preach on God the Father without saying, look, I know some of you have bad fathers, but here's the father your hearts longed for. That's just being pastorally. Absolutely- mm-hmm. I don't have the right to decide what are the descriptions of God and and with what wisdom will we say well let's come up with something of our own now exactly giving you gross examples but I think we have endemic to this and, and there, are, there are there's a range on this of course but what I see is a lack of confidence in the, in the ministry of the word of God lovingly delivered in a caring relationship and in a, and in a pastoral context we have lost And see that earlier generation had confidence in the word of God we have lost confidence in the word of God and, and I think postmodernity has not helped, you know, with all the attacks on Scripture that are coming in our seminaries and, and the whole evangelical culture, that we don't have confidence in the Word, and so we've got to do something. I sincerely believe that the ordinary means of grace are just that. They are those means given to us by God, to which He has attached promises that He will sovereignly employ them for the salvation of people. Um, and... And I, what I see is a, a fact I've read it. You know, people roll their eyes and go, oh, come on. You don't still believe that. We've got to be culturally relevant, and that's where they get uh, Now, let me present it now more positively. To be sure, um, we need to have a feel for the people. We need to understand our times. Um, I, I do think, and, and here I will agree with you know, a, a Tim Keller, a drawing, I think, from Francis Schaeffer, who says, you know, we need to preach the doctrine of creation more because people don't even realize that they have dignity as human beings. Now, to me, that's, that's a good application of being culturally relevant. You're understanding, the, you know, how to bring biblical truths to bear on people. Hmm. Um, and understanding what's happening. But in terms of our basic toolbox of how we minister the gospel, that's something we have received, not something that we, you know, uh, invent.
0: I found that really interesting. Uh, That reminded me of a time uh, Tim Keller did come to Westminster uh, to promote uh, his recent book, and they had a big uh, roundtable discussion. In the auditorium, and um, somebody asked him a question I forget exactly what the question was, but it was to the effect of how do you how do you get your messages tailored to all the different types of people since you have uh, a very diverse congregation, how do you make sure you reach each and every one of them?" And his answer was very simple, but it, it, it's very wise as well. He said, "Well, I preach expositorily through the scripture and scripture." Uh, is going to come to bear upon each of those people uh, individually. Basically, what he was saying is as he goes through the Bible, the Bible takes care of that. Just preach the text. Yeah. Know your people, but just preach through the text. We don't have to try and to market the message and change it and alter it beyond what the Bible's already we doing.
2: Know that we, who, who do you think we are? That we can figure out the needs of all these people. Hmm. You know, I, I'll tell you how I decide what text I'm going to preach on Sunday morning. It's the text after the one i preached. <laughs> <laughs> and for me to go, well, see, let me know. I'm going to do it this way or in a different way. I'm going to pick and
1: choose my text. You know what's going to happen is I'm just going to feed them my spiritual needs. Yeah, exactly. And, and it's also saying that certain portions of Scripture are not applicable to those people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you, and you, you get on your hobby horses. How
2: would I know what the specific spiritual needs of every person in my congregation yes I mean, I, obviously, I'm in deeper pastoral relationships with some and others, and that may give me insight into certain applications. Uh, I will admit, I I I talk about uh, marriage a lot. I mean, not every week, not even every month. But I think there's a crying need for us to live out the grace of the gospel in our closest relationships, and I'm worried about the state of marriage, and I get that from my experience as a pastor, and I'll make applications in that direction, maybe a bit more than if I didn't. But that's just application. One thing I'll say about Tim Keller, uh, you have a hard time finding a guy who more consistently and more clearly and more frequently presents the biblical gospel,
5: Mm.
2: and with a strong forensic structure. And um, so um, that's my concern with this whole making... I think there's a lack of confidence in terms of a lot of this making the gospel or or Christianity relevant. We're embarrassed of ourselves. Well, we've done some things wrong, and we're not that impressive, I admit it. But the gospel's not to be ashamed of. I am not ashamed of the gospel, Why? because it's Mm -hmm. the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And and I I don't want to get on a a Lloyd Jones hobby horse. The fact of the matter is that uh, for all their differences, everybody has the same needs. Everybody's under the wrath of God.
0: That's right. We're all sinners.
2: They need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that happens through the effectual calling, which God blesses through the general calling. It is my duty to give the general calling to people who are under the wrath of God, knowing that according to His sovereign pleasure, our wonderful, gracious God will do the the miracle of regeneration, And the person who, for every other reason, was the most likely to reject my message will, in fact, be converted. Mm. And there is no other salvation than that which comes through the gospel proclamation, the biblical gospel of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ being heralded and proclaimed, explained, and applied uh, from the pulpit and personal witness, all of that kind of thing. And God, see, we've lost the supernatural element Mm. That it is a supernatural work, and it mm. requires those those means given us by the the divine being we're seeking it from. And I think we're losing our confidence in the power of the Word. It's a topic I think that's very relevant, though, if I can bring up a new topic. Absolutely. I do think, because you mentioned earlier on, Nick, uh, Kuiper. Mm. Okay. And I do think there's a major tension going on, as has gone on before, between the two ways of looking biblically at the world, one is that of the antithesis, and the other is that of common grace. And I do think the old uh, um, Hoaxma-Kuyper argument becomes relevant to us today. Mm. And I I think, you know, you, you look at a denomination like the PCA, and everybody's trying to map out the PCA with all the factions. Look, everybody that I know in the PCA is reformed in some very meaningful sense. I mean, I doubt that if, if there's any ministers in the PCA, then it's just a, uh, it's just a, it's a data point that's flying out there. Who doesn't believe in the five points of Calvinism, you know, so on and so forth. I think the real divide is over methods of ministry, and I think that, that's borne out through some of There are some who more fundamentally look at the world through the biblical principle of antithesis. The light and darkness. Light has come into the world, and the darkness has is, is, is not overcome it. Uh, and there's others who would emphasize a common grace approach, and they see God working outside the gospel in all kinds of ways, and we need to acknowledge that and link up with that. I think, because I've been, I've been really wrestling, theologically, I, at a the level of theology, I think that is the issue. Hmm. Um, and I, and I, 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 frankly, I err, I mean, I err, I don't think I'm erring, I hope not. <laughs> I lean towards the antithesis side. Hmm that, I think if you, now I happen to be preaching the Gospel of John, I mean, what an antithetical book this is. Mm. Uh, oh, God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. But i got to tell you, that world is going to be judged. You are saved by leaving the world in John's you know, theology, and by you know, it's pilgrim's progress, fleeing the city of uh, destruction, and, and going to the celestial city. And when, you know, savior of the world does not mean the social structures. It mm. means all kinds of people, not Jews, only but Jews and Gentiles.
5: Mm-hmm.
2: I do think that again, maybe reacting against what we perceive as our own fundamentalism, that we are muting and maybe deceiving ourselves about the Bible's antithetical thinking about the culture. I mm. do not think we will redeem culture. I think that we will redeem sinners out of culture into the church. And um, I have very little aspiration. I mean, it'd be great, but I don't, of course, I'm not post-millennial either. I don't see America (laughs) having its social structures conformed to the Bible. I, I, I think what we're going to do is, I mean, certainly the more Christians you have, the more influence they're going to have. That's just not my goal. I don't see that as our work. Our goal is to save individuals. Yep, there I am. I do believe the gospel starts with individuals being uh, reconciled individually to God through personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But then corporate reconciliation takes place in the church. And I do not believe we're going to affect societal reconciliation outside of faith in Jesus Christ.
0: That's interesting. So what you're saying is something that I've I've been thinking about, that the the vector for Christian uh, cultural transformation is through regeneration of individual people. Yeah. That when the gospel comes to bear on a person's life and they repent of their sins and are saved, they become part of a new culture and therefore will will act and live in a new and uh, better way.
2: And meanwhile, they will still be in the old culture. Absolutely. Lighten yeah. that culture, and that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, oh. But... Um, but, you know, common grace, and let me put it this way, I do not believe that common grace is in and of itself redeeming in any way. Common grace is preservative. Mm. The, mm-hmm. the Noahic mm-hmm. covenant, you know, hey, look, we, I can't wipe everything out because I've got a plan of redemption coming and I need the world to be there. And so I'm not going to, there'll be no more floods, although I'm making no promises with respect to fire. You know, The yeah. Noahic <laughs> covenant. And uh, and I'm not going to destroy the world, but until the gospel work is done, and, um, and, and then the destruction of the world, of course, is a, is the reclaiming of the cosmos, ultimately, is in the second coming of Christ. Now, again, I don't want to speak overly dogmatic. It is good for us to reclaim things. You can go to you know, you have a school, and Christians go in there, and they, they can change it. I mean, I'm all for Christians having a societal impact, and we should,
5: mm.
2: but... The work of the gospel is not directly aimed at sociological restoration. Yeah, that's good. It, is, it just is not. And I look at the example of the apostles. I mean, Paul's living in Rome, and, you know, he t- he, much less Jesus living under the Roman Empire. And all of that corruption and all, it's just background context for the gospel. And... Yeah. Um, And you don't see them getting caught up in sociology in any way. And so I worry about the way that... And I I don't deny that there's common grace. God causes the rain to fall on the godly and the ungodly. But I believe, biblically, it is uh, preservative for the sake of the elect.
4: That's right. right. So common grace uh, serves special grace, not the other one. That's correct. And and, and the
2: two should not be confused. Mm -hmm. And, And meanwhile, while we are grateful for that... We, um, I think we need to recover a Christian antithesis towards the culture. Now, that's not hostility. That's not a Christian smugness. I, I've often said that one of the mistakes we're making today is that we're personalizing the culture war. And so we got a next-door neighbor who's a Democrat, and so we don't befriend him.
5: Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> you know, you're not fighting the culture war in your neighborhood. Go over there and, and get to know your neighbor. Show some love to him and witness the see If you don't witness the gospel to him, you're just. Then, what you're doing is nice, but you are not doing kingdom work. You are not doing another hobby course of mine. Because we're probably running short on time. Is incarnational ministry? You know, hmm. I, let me say this pointedly in the times. All incarnational analogies are false. Ultimately, at some level.
0: Is that because the incarnation was a unique event that is not to yeah. be repeated? That's what I've thought yeah, too. Yeah,
2: because you you yeah. have a fully divine being who is fully human, and a fully human being who's fully divine. Well, Absolutely, in separating them, we're joining together. So separate. Let me give you. Here's what. Here's how I've heard so many times. Here's incarnational ministry. Well, we're not going to tell them we're Christians. Not going to witness the gospel. <laughs> the last thing we're going to do is hand out tracks, book Right. Uh, we're just going to go there and love them and drink coffee. for uh, always coffee. Uh, why is
0: it always coffee? Yeah,
2: we're going to have a coffee ministry and you know, and we're just going to get to know them and we're going to incarnate the gospel. I want to say, dude, you are not the Christ, and you personally being there does not incarnate Christianity. For you to bring Jesus, you must speak to them about Jesus.
1: Yes,
0: this and, is why Machen called the gospel yeah. a grand indicative. Right? Yeah, yeah. And it's a statement. You it's a
2: proclamation. The only way to incarnate the gospel as a Christian is to verbally witness the gospel. And, and yes. if you've heard this, I admit this drives me crazy. People say, witness the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words. That's, yeah, That's not nice. Pa- it is false.
1: Paul, CC, yeah. what Paul it's said Paul. Uh, about the pretence, pretentious preachers, just so long as Christ is preached. So even yeah. Paul just wanted Christ to be preached. And I think we, I think there's a certain amount of cowardice. I'm not saying this about any individual, but I think of us in general.
2: You know, we want to be cool. You can't be cool, hip, and relevant if you're talking to people about Jesus. You know, they're, they're not going to like you, and you're not going to be culturally relevant anymore. Why? Because of the biblical antithesis. If the world hates you, well, it hated me first. Yeah. And uh, now this, none of this is said that we're to be hard-edged, hard-nosed, hard-hearted towards the world. You mm-hmm. just want to be biblically uh, uh, taught. Yeah. And we want to look at the world through a, I mean, we need to love everyone. And like Paul in Corinth, you know, we go there, sit and we go, oh, man, what a lousy ministry context this is. You know, I'm not going to get any converts here. And, and, and I mean, Corinth is the sink pit of, of Greece. And Jesus says, no, hang, hang in there, I've got people here. Mm. And so we are ministering for the sake of the elect to all people with the love of Christ. But there is no love of Christ without the verbal testimony to Jesus Christ. Mm. Right. We are not incarnating Jesus just because we're Christians. You see, I am not God. You know? I am um, Me being there does not bring Christ there. It brings a Christian there. But a Christian witness happens when I, you know, thoughtfully, prayerfully. I always advise people, I think we need to recover the, the primacy of prayer and evangelism. And here's what I tell my congregation. Is it not a fair expectation that there will be at least one person feel free to have more than one, but should we not all have one person who is on our hearts and we're going to pray for them, that God would give us the opportunity in a very natural way to present Christ? I'm not saying we run in and just start, you know, turn or burn, start yelling at people. No, we thought we prayerfully said, Lord, give, give me an opportunity, a good opportunity to share Christ with my co-worker and give me the courage to seize that opportunity. And Lord, would you bless that witness with his regeneration? and we Mm -hmm. start praying for them. And and then, yes, we start doing acts of of love and mercy to them for the sake of the gospel witness.
1: Rick, I wanted to ask you real quick, um, a term that gets bandied about a lot is social justice. Mm. I hear it all the time. And I know people go to Micah. I think Micah 7 approve it. Um, Do justice, do mercy. And the end of
0: Micah 4 as well. It's a popular place there.
1: What thoughts do you have about that?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, it, it is not a taboo expression, uh, but it needs to be biblically defined. I, I think what's really going on with the term social justice, and I don't, I'm not thinking of anybody who uses it, but it's, you right. know, we want to be hip and relevant, and that's hip and relevant. Right. And uh, often, like, take N.T. Wright and his his talk about the you know, global debt. The guy is way out of his competency. That's right. And we are not, and it's personal hobby horses. And we are not talking from, I mean, it's a pretty big stretch in many of the cases where we start talking about social justice. um, That um, we, you know, often we're talking way beyond our competency and we're no longer applying the scripture to situations. And again, see, the thing is, it's a fruit. How do I expect people who, who are not born again? and who cannot receive the things that come from the Spirit of God. They are not able to do so. How am I to expect them to do social justice until they are born again? Mm-hmm. Sovereign grace through my verbal witness of the gospel. Mm-hmm. The best thing we can do in pursuit of real social justice is evangelize. I mean, you know, how can we expect the godless to be godly? But instead, we stop preaching the gospel, or we devote energy away from the gospel to get involved in social causes, and we have abandoned the spiritual nature of this church. We, we were doing PCRT a couple of years ago in Sacramento, and Don Carson was there. We were doing a Q&A. And uh, a woman stood up and said, you know, this is all great, this Reformed theology. Aren't you all smart? Ooh, I'm so impressed. How come none of you are involved in feeding the poor? I don't see any of you you know, out there. And, and your church doesn't support us. And so it was a really uh, helpful comment. Don Carson answered in a way that I was really affected by. He goes, well, I think you're making a category error. Mm. Uh, I I don't know if this church is a member of this organization, this this non-church social organization, which I'm sure is doing good work. I suppose they aren't, and I applaud them for not being involved, because they have the particular calling of preaching the gospel. And that is more important, frankly, and you can't do everything. And God has called us to this. Now, I would bet if you look on the roles of those organizations, you'll find a lot of Christians in it. And we confuse the calling of Christians with the calling of the Church. And Christians, in all kinds of ways, based upon the, their individual calling, which comes out in a number of ways, Christians are to be at work, assault salt and light in the world, in all kinds of ways. But the Church is to maintain a spiritual calling from the Lord Jesus Christ to preach the
0: gospel. One thing that's important to emphasize uh, alongside of the spirituality of the church doctrine is a, is a robust reform doctrine of vocation. Uh, if we don't have that, absolutely we, we, we see some deficiencies. But when we understand that Christians as individuals can work in various jobs that God has called them to and act as Christians, albeit individually, in their capacities... Uh, it's a very powerful
5: thing.
2: Yeah, and, and I, I think we're in real danger of, you know, the thing most needed is for sinners to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Mm-hmm. And the Church must make that her, you know the, the, the focus that is far above all others. And I, I get worried when we start devoting ourselves to social causes, however worthy, although in some cases they may not be worthy, I think we're so desiring to be relevant right now, and the Republicans are out of favor, you know. And right. so yeah. uh, we're all kind of, you know, there's all this kind of left-leaning, and it, isn't it hip to have an Obama sticker in your car and all that? <laughs> um, the, you know, I, I, if you look at my, my Facebook, it says, what is your political affiliation? I say I, I have strong political views, but I do not think it, it, it helps my personal calling to preach the gospel to let them be done publicly. Yeah. And, um, but I happen to be an ordained gospel minister. And uh, I, I think that the great need of our day is to hear the gospel. Even most professing Christians today may not have heard the gospel because of the health of gospel and all that. Mm. Surely, uh, so let's devo- let's focus ourselves to evangelism, which requires, which is all kinds of ways of bringing forth the gospel, the good news of what's mm. done in and through Jesus Christ. That is, and we are not as zealous as we should be on that. And I I think I'm convicted that. And that's why I think my book, Jesus the Evangelist, if you said to me, you know, which of the books you've written you think is actually most important, I would say that's the one. I think that's the great need of our hour for us to recapture both a zeal for evangelism and a biblical definition of what evangelism is.
0: Yeah. Rick, uh, before we get going, uh, can you give us just a couple uh, minutes? Describe in your, your recent book, What's So Great About the Doctrines of Grace? Uh, we've had our eye on that, and if we could just get a, a real, real brief overview, I think that would be really helpful.
2: Yeah, um, the, the, the basic thing that's driving that whole book is that it is not enough for us to know the, the doctrines of grace. We need, to, we need to know the grace of the doctrine. And so while in each of the chapters I have a chapter on the sovereignty of God out of Isaiah 6
5: mm-hmm.
2: and I work through the five points of Calvinism but that a lot of, you know I, I make an earlier transition than would normally be the case and I say okay why is this great why, why does this change everything and the weight of that book it's a short book it's, it's you know I, I wrote the book to be uh, an introductory level book that you could hand to the, that you could read yourself and and I do think there's a need for us to get out of polemic mode all the time,
5: mm-hmm.
2: we have a duty to polemics, but it should be, you know, ex, you know, as needed only. The reform faith is not, by definition, and is not inherently polemical. We do not, you know, we're not being great reformers by arguing on the internet. Um, and I think there's a need today to recapture the grace, the power of the truths conveyed in the doctrines of grace. And so, what I do in each of the doctrines is, I, you know, I. I I, I present them and defend them with the exposition of key passages. So you, there's many other books that will be far more doctrinally intense in terms of dealing with all the issues, and, mm. ex, and I commend those books and exhaustively proving all the doctrines. I, I do that, but not in great detail. I think persuasively from the scriptures. But then I say, okay, now what's so great about? What's so you know? What's so great about total depravity? I mean, okay, if <laughs> you have to like it, <laughs> well, I do. And, uh,
0: that would have been a title for you. <laughs> How many would you have sold, you think? What's so great about total depravity? <laughs> yeah,
2: well, I mean, and uh, it is a great teaching. And it is. It, it humbles me, and it, it causes me to rely wholly on the sovereign grace upon
5: God. Mm-hmm. Amen. It, Amen.
2: It, it, put, it rightly positions me to really receive the grace that God offers in the gospel. And so total depravity is a beloved doctrine. The one I first preached was Limited Atonement. The, the, the book came from a PCRT address I did two years ago. We did the PCRT on the Doctors of Grace. And being the, the, the chairman of the conference, I gave myself Limited Atonement. And, uh, uh, and I, I, I concluded that address with a fairly long section of, uh, you know, why does this matter? And I talked about the, 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 um uh, the nature of the devotion that we have to Jesus because of London the covenant, Namely, he died for me. And so I live for him. And I I serve and worship and trust a God who went to the cross dying for Rick Phillips personally
5: mm-hmm.
2: and knowingly at some profound level. I'm, I'm not going to parse that all to the video, you know, but he, Jesus, for the joy set before him, he took up the cross and he died for me. And and I, and when I preached that message, I thought, man, this is what we need. We, all of us, we need to, we need to get to the spirituality of the Reformed faith. And so, it's a fairly short book. It's probably the shortest of all my books. And it's, it's meant. I'd love to see this be a book. You know, you've had a, you've been discussing Reformed theology with someone, and they're just trying to get it. And they read this book, and they go, "Wow, this really is great stuff."
0: Well, that book's available uh, from the Ligonier's publishing that, Reformation Trust, is that correct? Yeah. Uh, Awesome. And also, you can uh, get a hold of Rick's other books. We've mentioned several, Jesus the Evangelist. Uh, He has a few commentaries, uh, Zechariah and Hebrews as well. Uh, Just do a search on Amazon, or I'll link to it um, through our website. But we want to thank everyone for for joining us. A really, this has been a great discussion. Uh, a lot of material for further for further shows and for uh, comments. Uh, but we'll be back next week. And until then, you can visit castlechurch.org to read the show notes and view today's bibliography. You can also find more information about our other programs and even subscribe to our podcast feeds. You can visit castlechurch.org/contact to send us your questions or your comments, or just simply email us at christ. The Center at CastleChurch.org. So we thank you for listening and we look forward to having you back next time on Christ the Center.